Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the podcast from the Marketing Minds at DoYouConvert.com, where we talk about the current state of all things digital and how they impact home builders and developers around the globe. We're not here to sell you. We're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. I'm Kevin Oakley, and with me today, as always, is the ad doctor, Andrew Peake. As always, and it's episode 119, and Julie is with us this week. Hey, good to be here. It's good to have you here. Have you all had a pumpkin spice latte yet? Uh, not my thing. No, oh. I haven't. It's um, no. We haven't had a cold front yet in Florida. We're in the 80s this week, so we're definitely cooler than we were, but until I have to put a hoodie on or something, I will resist. So it might yeah. be December. Yeah. I know it's we're- very not cool of me as a marketer to be like saying this about those things, but I, I just love them. I only need like one or two a year, and this is the only time so I you- drink them. No, I haven't had one yet either, though. Um, so. <laughs> I did buy pumpkin. What were they? Uh, pumpkin bagels. Uh, but I guess Thomas bagels aren't real bagels, so they're fake pumpkin bread flavored bagel things. I didn't try them yet, but yeah, yeah we'll Thomas see. Bagels figured out how to add just enough of like the glazy texture to the outside mm-hmm. of the bagel to fool you into thinking they're real bagels. But yeah, they're not potato <laughs> bagels, especially especially ones like that. Like seasonal bagels usually mm-hmm. are fresher, and so they're much softer. Also, like, don't ask me how I know this, the Lucky Charms that you can buy in a bag that don't have the cereal, just the marshmallows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not as good because they're oh. soft and mushy. They haven't sat around for months waiting to be shipped over from wherever they are. They're not the stale enough. Right. <laughs> you're, you're making me not appreciate <laughs> It's just like a circus peanut. You can't eat a fresh circus peanut. That's terrible. You got to open mm-hmm. up the bag, walk away, come back a, a couple weeks later, and then they're, they're perfect. I guess any one of these. <laughs> hey, maybe we oh, should man. start story time. We should. <laughs> Let's start story time. I have a fun one. Okay. It'll be, it's great. It's great. So we, we had our second HOA board meeting or whatever meeting. So before it was run by the builder, now we're transitioned to just us. We're running it, but we also have the, the management company in place that's making sure our board knows what to do. So that handoff took place and it was a great, fun, heated meeting. It was like two and a half hours. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and we've noticed this trend. The more our community is difficult and complains, the more warning letters go out for like really, really tiny things like anything. <laughs> that could be right. So this like, and it's the same person, like her name's Megan. And so she'll be on the, on the call. And like, we're giving her a hard time because we don't understand it. It's all about education is the most part. Like we don't mm-hmm. understand the process and it just creates tension, et cetera. So it's funny. We had the meeting and then like four days later, everyone's getting like their letters and you see them walking from the mailbox. Like, cause we have like, it's at the end of the street versus mailboxes at each house. And then like the next night you see everyone like this, that house doing this, this house doing that. And it's, it's hilarious. And so our thing, we had like weeds in our flower beds um, that were like, it, it was the picture she had. It's like, that's not even the side that gets the weeds. Like, how did you get that picture? What in the world? So this is leading up to a story that, that makes sense. I wanted to, the model home, which was sold, has amazing landscaping because it was the model. Everyone else has like kindergarten stuff. And here's this one with like doctorate level landscaping. Uh, they were like, we just need to have more plants and stuff in our flower beds. And then if there is a little bit of weeds, one, they won't grow probably, I think, or they'll be hidden. We're all set. So we're doing that. And I wanted to find pictures of the model home to then send Lindsay to go pick some up on the way home um, from work today. And I found the pictures, but guess where I found the pictures at? On another, it was a syndicate website, but not on the builder website. I couldn't find, that's not on the builder's website anymore, our community. 
Ah. Ah, so it made me think like, oh, like, and here we have 24 houses in our community. Like we're tiny, but these bigger communities that have sold, sold out for a year, but maybe there's 200, 300 in there. They're very likely. I need to look at other builders. That traffic is still going somewhere. It's just going to either real estate listing sites or the syndication or whoever else has is winning the organic traffic. But if you take that community down, you're not getting that traffic anymore. And so this one, I think it was BuzzBuzz, BuzzBuzz Home, Mm -hmm. um, their site and had the pricing. It had all the information that you don't really want to talk about as far as excuses or reasons to not keep that community on your site. Like we don't want to show the floor plans. We don't want to show the prices. All that was still living on this old site with no control. And then of course you get on there and you're like, oh, explore around. And so they're viewing competitors. And it just made me think like, if you can control the message still afterwards, like, oh, let's, let's try to do that. I know that's an old one. We've definitely talked about for a while, but here's like a real life example. Yeah. I'm like, this just happened. I'm trying to get pictures and I found the pictures I th- on this other site. I think it was, let's see, the first online sales and marketing summit was 2015. So it was 2016 when we had Denver. We had Andrew from Lunametrics, Andrew Garberson, talk about the fact that your website should be like an elephant and never forget anything. And mm. Julie, Julie's former company, Ideal, mm-hmm. uh, did a great job of fixing that problem with something that a lot of builders even say is the harder one, going straight to every time an individual house sold you guys started moving it over into a separate sold tab. And now I, th- yeah. I think you guys, you guys, you're now ours. You're not there. <laughs> you are. Um, <laughs> you are ours. I think there's the like 300 and some in, in the sold or 110 in the sold category. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like yeah. that. I and they like take that. the, they take the pricing off. Uh, mm-hmm. One thing people ask us every once in a while, they say, has there ever been a homeowner that's complained because mm-hmm. their home is on there with photography. And we never had a homeowner complain. I mean, it's there other places than Zillow or Realtor.com or whatever. Right. But if, if they did complain, we could easily take it off. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I'd be more likely to say, can I send you some new pictures to update when I added that sunroom on the back? <laughs> <laughs> I think that I've never noticed that. That is really cool. And then over time, it's that number will get Bigger, well, obviously. again, the exercise um, here, which is not scientific, but is very easy to do, is just take any of your move and ready homes that you have left that are on your website and just copy the address, put it into Google and see what shows up. And, and then again, to, to your point, Andrew, the same thing happens with communities mm-hmm. all the time. Now, Ideal hasn't solved that with the community. We, do, we have worked with other builders who have tackled the sold out community thing. But again, the, the folks at, at O'Neill Interactive know how to how to solve that problem and have yeah. worked with uh, several builders to do it. But yeah, there's no reason not for it to continue to show up unless you're always embarrassed about people looking for your community name yeah. later. Like you want it to just totally the, the thought it. of like I've always thought like they of reasons to have it. Like, oh, people can find it, like that. I never thought about like, well, they're gonna end up somewhere anyways. Like mm-hmm. whether it's some of your site or someone else's site. Might as well be your site. Yep. Like, yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Julie, you got anything for us? Sure. Yeah. And finally, I've had looking into refinancing our mortgage on my list for about, you know, two or three what? months now. Oh, fun. And finally today, you know, but I had a new job. I've been busy. Um, <laughs> so finally today, I reached out to um, who did our mortgage the first go around. Cause I'm going to talk to the local guy first before I look some of those places to see if they have lower rates. But first off, his follow-up was awesome. 
as soon as I emailed him, I said, I'm going to be in meetings a lot of today, but you can call me, you can email me. He called me, emailed me, left me a voicemail and texted me all within like, you know, wow. 15 minutes of each other. Wow. Um, but then the other thing I got to thinking of, which this is probably kind of obvious, but it's one of those things that don't hit you till you're going through it is it's such all these people are refinancing. It's such a trigger for you to think, okay, am I sure I'm happy in this house for another, mm. however long it takes to recoup Break my even. money? Right. Exactly. So that's what we're looking at. Good. And I'm wondering how many other people are looking at, should we refinance? And then once they start going down that process, they're like, well, do we want to be here another two years or year, whatever it is um, yep. to recoup their money. So that's, it's a, it's a little kick that might be boosting some people towards. And that's, uh, that's happening even for DYC yeah. employees. So Jackie Askews, who will be on a future episode to tell the full story here. So I'll just give you the preview, but her and her husband now both work from home. She was working from home with us, but now her husband who works in finance is also working from home. And they're like, we need a house now with two offices. Two offices would be amazing. Two separate, <laughs> separate offices too, which yeah. I think is like the, not as common. They're like, oh, they could work together. No, no one wants to do that because how do you do well, two calls? Especially not when you're on Zoom calls back to back with yeah. each other, right? It's just, yeah. it's hard. So she's got a story already about experience with responsiveness and, and what the perception was to her husband who's not in the business. And she's just kind of watching that happen. So it'll be here, fun to hear that story will be. too. And yeah, that this isn't this is kind of a news thing, but it's the right time to talk about it. That same question that you're talking about of am I happy here with refinancing is why as long as rates stay low, price increases haven't reached the savings from a monthly payment standpoint that you would get if you if you buy and you kind of become aware of that when you refinance. You're like, mm -hmm. "Oh, this is now my new lower payment." Huh? So if I'm not happy and I need to buy something else, I, ha I now have a benchmark of looking at something else and being like, maybe that's going to match my current payment before the lower interest rate. Yeah. So maybe now I can step out to a higher, higher level home. And so that, I do think the market's going to continue to be strong for home builders until price increases match the savings that we've had in terms of rate reductions. So, mm -hmm. you know, 50,000 to 75,000 ish is, is kind of the purchase purchasing power that we've gained by the rates going down over the last year. Crazy. I don't think most builders as an average have taken that much in price increases, even though lumber is increasing. So it's, it's kind of that inflection point that will kind of make things more normal. And then we'll just have the geographical adjustments and general unhappiness with our floor plans driving a lot of this. I also saw an interesting number, don't have a link for it. Mm. Uh, Home builders only have about 12% market share right now in total. I think that was from John Burns posted that somewhere on social media that I saw. And the previous peak was 15 um, pre-Great Recession. So hmm. uh, a lot has been said about, you know, stealing market share from existing homes. And that's it, true, but that's not really the main reason as much as... Um, people wanting a different product that thankfully you can't get from existing. So I guess, let me clarify. The narrative has been not enough people are willing to sell their existing homes. And it's more that, well, that existing home, before you were thinking to yourself, it's got eight foot ceilings, not nine or 10. It's got, you know, these features that I can't easily change or remodel. And can I live with that? And now the office question is one, for example, that you just can't easily fix with, it's not a new coat of paint. It's not 
swapping out the flooring. It's a major project. So that still gives new home builders a leg up. Yeah. And I imagine like doing an addition now is like crazy. Like mm-hmm. the time frame. I know down here pools are with COVID and then Florida being Florida. I think we're now like you're like four months out if you want to yeah. pull. I I I know I said this before, but when I got a quote to add an office that was going to be like 14 by 15 onto our existing home that we live in now, the quote that I got back, the the mid-range was $115,000. What the? Wow. And that was was three years ago. That's when we were like, all right, buy and land. Just let's just do this right. Uh, That's ridiculous. Wow. Uh, My story time is... Awesome. Like this might be my favorite story that I will tell at every keynote or talk I give for a long time to come. But we got, uh, Beck and I got on a call this week with someone who we started working with on August 1st. And just a small talk. And I said, hey, have you noticed any, before we looked at any of the data points, I just said, have you noticed any increase in activity either on site or online since August 1st? And as deadpan of a response as possible, um, the person on the call said, yes, but I wouldn't give you guys any of that credit. And I said, oh, I mean, internally, I was like, oh, okay. I wasn't even going there. I was just wondering generally how you're doing, but now I, I understand where you're coming from. And just to give everyone else some quick context here. Oh, man. From August 1st to mid-September compared to the previous time period. So middle of June to end of July. Quick survey of everyone listening. Did you have a pretty good mid-June to end of July? Right, Most builders record-setting numbers, right? Already then. So what magically happened on August 1st? Well, their number of visitors to their website went up 47%. Bounce rate decreased almost 10%. Duration increased to three minutes and 29 seconds. Uh, and, and their lead counts went from 151 in July to 306 in August. They're now on pace to hit 600 in September. Wow. And I was just like, how do I... I do, there's no need to get confrontational here because just good things are happening. And I don't really care if we get the credit or not. But from an educational perspective, where do we go? And so I said, okay, I mean, price increases, price increases on the market was the answer. So if it wasn't us, I said, well, oh, what do you give attribute it to? Well, we raise prices a bunch and we think that's great in urgency. Just everyone, again, ask yourself, would a price increase, which does create urgency among people who already know you exist and have been shopping, it doesn't necessarily drive a 50% increase in new users to the site pegged to the specific change of when ad strategy adjusted. So where I went was the easiest one to explain, uh, which is Facebook and Instagram. Google, a little bit more technical, uh, takes longer. This is someone who's not, admittedly, not as uh, aware about digital marketing strategies and how that works. So we start talking about the Facebook campaigns that are in place and how at five cents a click it's and this quality level, it's it's really doing a lot of the heavy lifting for them. And this is when I knew we were in a good spot. She said, so is this kind of like when I shop for something at Macy's, like a purse or some shoes, and then I see that stuff come back? Is it kind of like that? <laughs> and I said, yes, except for 
this is the scenario that's more like what if Macy's could see what you were shopping for at Target and at Walmart and and then try to sell you the right shoe or or purse through digital advertising. That the AI that Facebook and Instagram uses is not just remarketing based upon product or e-commerce strategies. It is saying I can see everything. I know you're on Zillow. I know you're on Realtor.com. I know you're everywhere else. And this is like 20 now, around 20 minutes into the call. I had explained it and, and done some of that coaching. And it was just the best. The reason it's the best story ever is because where it started, right? Um, you guys deserve no credit for this whatsoever too. They were transitioning away from, from another partner and it was going to be a slower transition. And she's like, uh, you're going to be getting an email from me later today and we're all in. Like, go. <laughs> Go further because we nice. had been holding down spend because they were still spending money with another partner, and so it was, it was just a, it was my favorite call in at least this month. It's just been a blast. Anytime you start with someone new, and especially when they have preconceived notions about it all, and don't have a full understanding because they've never been educated by their other partners. It was just here's mm-hmm. here's some clicks, here's some leads. Hope that works. It was just a blast. There's this weird part of me that Andrew probably knows, Julie probably doesn't yet, but the more confrontational a person is, the more fun I have with it. Um, <laughs> this is the best it's, call. It's <laughs> just, yeah, that, then there's something interesting. There's something, there's like a new twist to the puzzle. Of It's of a new challenge. Works. I had a question from a builder partner and it was a more difficult one. I'm like, oh, fun question. <laughs> and yeah. she, she replied back like, well, I'm not sure what type of fun you have, but I guess, <laughs> like she was like, and then I, I explained it further. I'm like, no, 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 this is like a good challenging question. And like, she, she knows what she's doing, which is what made it even more fun because it was uh-huh. like, oh, let's solve this together. This is great. Um, yeah, I know what you mean though. Yep. All right. And a story time, quick event update. Uh, for the Pulse, over 200 tickets have been sold, so I can't I can't count much past that anyway. <laughs> so um, don't expect Those. a whole lot more breakdown in the future on, on where we are. But we are well over 200 tickets sold. The VIP Pulse events ended on September 15th, but everyone can still register until the day before, and you will be part of a group. It'll just be a little more cosmopolitan would be the nice way to say it. Uh, yeah. in terms of the mixture of people who will be in your group because we are going to be spending a lot of time curating those groups and getting people introduced to themselves and get it all set up. Uh, but yeah, can't be more excited for the Pulse. Also a big thank you, Davies Imaging uh, out of LA is now our 18th sponsor for the Pulse. Uh, they do high-end photography, videography, and Matterport, like extremely high-end, like you would expect it to transition to a Michael Bay film or something when you're looking at it. I need to go watch some of their, their work. Yep. So excited cool. to have uh, them join us as well as all the other amazing partners wow. there. I was thinking as awesome. I was talking to someone else who is launching actively an online course that goes for a whole year. There's 50 different video homework segments to this thing. Wow. It's and insane. it's already made. Yep. And like high-end production, it's amazing. It's not related to marketing or sales really at all. It's, it's a different thing. We'll talk more about it once it's publicly announced. But I was like, oh, I just, I can't see us doing that ever for what we do on the marketing. It just changes too much. There'd be too much churn be a lot. on the basics. But 
I am getting tempted to this idea of an actual like college level class. So this, oh. this is like my way of becoming Professor Oakley without having to get a doctorate. <laughs> I do kind of love this idea of having a class where I would lecture, give you an assignment, grade the assignment, you might have a final exam. That's more my style. Um, the Academy will not be that, by the way. It'll be more of a boot camp, but <laughs> nope. you can go check that out. Anyway. No final exam, the Academy. Yeah. Oh, not at the cat. Well, there might be. <laughs> there might be kind of a quiz. People are scared of the word exam. They are. So we'll just say quiz. All right. Moving on to the news. Let's start with from Inman.com. Open Door. We posted this on our Facebook and LinkedIn groups, but Open Door is officially going public. Uh, Open Door is the company that kind of started the eye buying craze here in the U.S. And um, until Zillow got in the game as well, was definitely the largest company involved in that. They generated $4.7 billion in revenue in 2019 and sold more than 18,000 homes uh, during that time frame. So now they need access to capital to continue to grow. Um, Did it say what they made? Profit-wise? Yeah. Oh, let's I'm not at, talk about profit. This is bah. a high-growth enterprise. It's, it's not important. <laughs> yeah. It definitely, the more you spend time understanding the stock market and and how companies that scale work. Well, Snowflake is a great example. Mm-hmm. Just went public uh, this week. Largest tech IPO of all time. The share price doubled within the first day of offering. And it was valued at 100 times sales. They are not profitable whatsoever. But the stock value was, you'll hear multiples of a certain number. And usually it is uh, not, not future sales, but this is like 100 times future sales. No hint of profitability in sight. But the growth is so fast that profitability, it's, everyone's like, well, we understand why we're not profitable because we have to scale fast enough to keep competition out. And that's definitely where the iBuy movement is. It's not as much about, in fact, I think it was, this is totally way old news now, but we talked about Zillow Mm -hmm. and their amount of money that they were losing initially off of every transaction that they did through iBuying. It was like 60K plus lost. Now that's because they were hiring more people, investing in the, right? So Opendoor now has access to more capital to become, uh, to scale into more markets more quickly. Open Door is a sponsor of the Pulse as well. So thank you to those guys. Uh, we expect at least, you know, a couple percentage of the extra <laughs> yeah. billions that, that you now have access point, to point as, a, as a thank you. But they did it in a different way, which uh, this is maybe too much inside baseball, but they, they went public through a SPAC, which is a special purpose acquisition company. And so Social Capital which is a well-known investment firm, started a SPAC. And what, they, what a SPAC does is they tell investors, give us all your money. We're going to take a company public directly through this approach. And we can't tell you who yet, but trust us, please. Wink, wink. So then instead of having to go through a more complex regulatory process and, and definitely accelerates the path, um, the SPAC essentially purchases the company and takes it public because the SPAC is already a public entity. So it's a very quick move. And I was shocked when I was dropping my daughter off at school. And I was like, everyone's silent. 
in the in the in the truck. Everyone, please stop talking. I need to, I need to hear what's happening right now. It took me totally by surprise. <clears throat> so now I believe this also means that SoftBank, which was connected to WeWork, you might remember that issue. Um, I believe that we WeWork or SoftBank now um, is also going to be transitioning out of the business as they need more capital for other things that are going on. But it's exciting news because they will be able to expand markets much, much faster than they would have without this type of investment. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it's, and it's good for everyone to have some good competition. You know, Zillow and Opendoor are definitely the one and two uh, in, the, in, the, in the marketplace for that. And it's, it's always good to have competition for everyone. Let's see. Next up, the SEO stuff. Yeah, let's talk about this SEO um, article that I found. Okay. So this was on, on Search Engine Land. And well, you know, link in the show notes. And that's really the point. The point is if you feel uncomfortable with SEO or like how if does a website rank in general, if, if that like thought in your head is like, I really don't know at all. This, I think, is a really good article to get you started, at least in understanding some of yep. the ranking factors. It breaks down each one. So it talks about the on-site, talks about links to your site, all the factors in there. And of course, there's I don't know how many actual factors there are, but this categorizes them so you could at least understand then if you are hiring an seo company you'd be like well i know there's these principles that i need to know they're working on with the website or you could i think a lot of this you could start applying on your own like oh my title tags every single one is the same i should yeah, probably this is a that. really good and you can do that we've, we've, we've linked to a couple of these over the years but this is a, a good relatively updated one now it is sponsored content just i know, know to be aware like oh. But headline is eight major Google ranking factors and SEO guide. And so we'll just drive through these real fast. And if, if either one of you have comments, just uh, s- slow me down. But, but backlinks, links simply to your trying website. to get people to link back to your site to help the domain authority. Semantic saturation. That's, that's, a the, fancy, that's the fancy, fancy way of saying the right on-page content. So if you don't okay. say new homes on your site anywhere or new homes in the market you sell, that could be an issue. Uh-huh. HTML tags, core web vitals, you know, how, how fast does it load? Is it uh, everything visible? Uh, user behavior, so having good bounce rate, uh, page session and, and average session duration, those quality metrics that we talk about, having structured data on the site, Having a Google My Business listing that's accurate and updated, obviously, and mobile optimization are the eight they list. Here's the main thing that I tell everyone why it's important to, to understand these things. One, to not be taken advantage of, to know what you're actually paying for and make sure it's worth paying for. And the second is this idea of most SEO work of all of these eight things listed here, only I would argue maybe two of them would be something that you would be doing on an ongoing forever basis. Maybe two and a half. But yeah. the majority of them, which is what most SEO companies uh, charge you for or want to charge you for, are things where you fix a problem and then move on. And you might have to audit that problem again later, but it is not this... Backlinks are incredibly tough. You're going to work forever on that. Um, but And Google My Business needs to be updated. But the hardest mm-hmm. part with Google My Business is simply people getting doing. verified. Yeah, doing it. <laughs> right? And then user experience and mobile optimization, sure. I mean, but HTML tags, 
semantic saturation, core web vitals. I mean, a lot of this stuff is, yeah. it's either right or wrong, you need to fix it. And so we highly recommend in most instances, paying someone to do an audit and fixes on those things that are one-offs and then agree on a lower ongoing structured payment for the things that need the routine maintenance. So if it's, you know, if it's in the one to two grand range on a monthly basis, you're probably somewhere in the right area as long as they're, they are truly working on those things that need to be worked on on a continuing basis. But after month four, I mean, semantic saturation, having the right keywords and tagging things properly, that's probably mostly done. Yeah. And I feel like the semantic one would be, ideally, they could coach you on how to check it yourself. But if not, then I would think that'd be like every, I would expect them to be like, here's what you screwed up when we left you to add Mm -hmm. content to your website. And then backlinks, I feel like whenever I did SEO back in the day, the only way you could get legitimate backlinks was doing real things that were worth talking about, which is marketing with an M, capital M. Like it's yeah. like you're like being a real a real business locally uh-huh. uh, most of the time. Yep. I I just got a proof of the workbook that we're going to be using for the Pulse um, that we're we put together in conjunction with Melanie Diesel. Sweet. And I'll just give you a snapshot. It's like 78 plus pages of content ideas. Wow. And the one that I think just hit me quickly as being extremely interesting is the idea of using existing mapping technology and overlaying data that only you know or that you would have unique insight or opinions about. So you think about, you know, people use Google Maps API to embed Google Maps. Well, what other layers could you add on top of that to say, here's the areas of where people are moving to. Here's where we've sold homes over the last three years as a heat map. Here's where different school districts rank on. And and just this idea of using mapping technology. And if you create things like that, that's like an infographic that you don't have to be super creative about the visual element. And getting Mm -hmm. that stuff linked to as backlinks should be much easier than you wrote an article that we think your audience may find interesting. Would you have interest in back? You can tell I've gotten a few of those emails. Uh, Yeah. All all the time. Yep. That's a lot of pages, 78 pages. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Put some work in. And then we always like talking about general um, market level stuff too. So this one is from the wall street journal. Becca found it and tossed it over to us here. And the headline is millions are house rich, but cash poor and Wall Street landlords are ready. Julie, give us the quick overview here. Yeah, basically, they're just staying with um, home prices rising. People have a lot of equity in their homes right now. But because of um, coronavirus and market reasons, a lot of people are having falling behind on payments. So I think the number was there's like um, 3.5 million home loans in forbearance. So they're not getting evicted yet um, because of, you know, they're being protected from that. But a lot of people are kind of on that bubble that they're about to be because they're getting in trouble with payments, but they have a bunch of equity. So a bunch of these um, big investors who do rentals are ready to come in and grab those up like they did back when people were getting foreclosed on back in 2008. So Mm -hmm. they're going to come in and there's going to be new renters because of the people who are 
um, having to sell. Either they have to sell or they want to sell because they have mm-hmm. a lot of equity and they can't make their payments. So they're wanting to sell um, or, you know, they basically get forced into it. Sounds good for iBuying as well. Well, that's right. That's still where I can't imagine that Open Door or Zillow or someone at some point doesn't say, huh? I mean, there's two parts of this Airbnb, we could turn them into short term rentals that we own ourselves. And on our own platform, you could use, you know, you could go on Zillow and look for a place to rent when you're going to be traveling somewhere for an extended period of time. But also, yeah, uh, long term rental options versus short term rental seems like. As long as the capital's there, because the cash flow is totally different. And that's we've talked about that. A lot of home builders building for rent have to find joint venture partners because the the over long-term return is is better. The cash flow just looks different because you're getting paid much, much less just every single month forever, as long as it's rented. Uh, I think I like this quote here from uh, Invitation Homes, which is not currently building any more homes, but is purchasing homes, said that they're they're on a pace of buying about $200 million worth of homes every three months. And so they just sold another half a million dollar worth of shares in June. And the CEO said, we could have, quite frankly, raised a whole bunch more. People want in on this because at some point when inflation hits hard and things take a turn and affordability just becomes a bigger and bigger problem over time, uh, single family rental is going to probably be a really huge long-term trend. For sure. The last down at the bottom, the last quote is once January comes, that's when the carnage will come. <laughs> it's pretty dramatic. Yeah. That is dramatic. I think that's because of the forbearance <laughs> at that point um, no longer applies. And so you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. A lot of people are protected right now. Yep. I think that's where um, this could be related or not related. I would, I would think the outcome of the election would influence the carnage. Can we, is that, are we getting too. You always right like to go this fine line, <laughs> right, Andrew? Like the, <laughs> the story that brings it up: my neighbor wants to open a franchise that sells sandwiches. Uh-huh. They're not doing anything until the election. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't think that. I mean, here's I the thing: whoever, like, hey, whoever, whoever wins the election, at least in the short term, is going to want to do whatever they can for the economy to be good as good as they can. Mm-hmm. Right? There's the long term intentions of either party that you know. Then yes, that gets political. The short-term intentions of either party is going to be put as many people back to work as possible, yep. get things looking good as as much as possible, and and help people out to to fill the gap. Last kind of financial thought here on this is, then why would I want to buy into this idea now? If the carnage comes in January, that's when the really great opportunities would come. If you are, aren't thinking compassionately, <laughs> you'd be yeah, like. So- Let's just wait and buy even more in January at a discount. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting take on that. Okay, last last uh, non well, it is a news item. We just won't have a link in the show notes for this. And this is what you've all been waiting for. This is why you've been listening to us talk about everything else for this part because this is the most fascinating thing to me. Surprise! So to set the table, Facebook Pixel gets data on user behavior that then gets sent to your ad account to tell the ad account if it's working, not working, who to target, et cetera. And um, there was some privacy transitions that occurred a couple months ago, and it led to some interesting findings that are not quite scientific yet, but I'm comfortable enough talking about them here that I think they are 
uh, worth worth knowing or considering, which is that when you re- when you start a new ad, the pixel has to do expanded reach. It's going to reach more people because it has to have enough data to learn and know who to target and optimize. That often creates a spike in activity at a lower cost per click, but the quality of that traffic is usually l- lower. Maybe that's where I'll leave it as a tease for now. That is a we'll, let, we'll let everyone kind of put the put the puzzle pieces together. We'll give the the more flushed out insight um, next week or the week after. I'm not sure about the schedule of the show, but just just ponder that and think to yourself, hmm, what might I want to do with that information? All right. We'll take a quick break. <laughs> and when we come right back. We'll be joined by Steve Whaley, the Director of Marketing for Fisher Homes. We had his counterpart on before, Carrie Regiers. That was on the Camping with Carrie episode where we talked about their pre-sale without fail success. Uh, But Steve's got a little bit different role than most marketers listening. I think you guys will find it extremely fascinating. So we'll be right back with Steve. And we're sitting down today with Steve Whaley, the Director of Corporate Marketing at Fisher Homes. Steve, thanks for joining the program. Absolutely glad to be here. Steve, we first talked, I remember the first time we talked, I was standing at an outside of a new shopping center in Pittsburgh. I worked for Heartland Homes at the time. I think it was probably 2011. Mm. I was walking around this fake AstroTurf outside of a newly constructed REI building uh, killing time between meetings, talking to you about, hey, we're considering starting an online sales program. What do you think? Who is this Mike Lyon guy? Seems a little shady. So do you convert thing? <laughs> but that, that that's how long we've known. I think that was the first time we talked. Is that's that, correct. Do you remember I, that? I remember that wow. phone call as well. And we were just sort of in the initial stages of looking at what would be the digital revolution, right, in, in home building. And so, you know, at the time we were wanting to to step very carefully and just make gradual approaches. Um, and it took us a couple of years to get there, but we eventually, uh, we eventually did commit to it. Well, and that's the reason I shared that part of the story is because the rest of our time, people are going to think that Fisher Homes and you, which you have, you, you've kind of done a 180 in that perspective of now you guys are often the first ones to ask us a question that no one else has asked us before. Like, Hey, should we go here? Should we, should we push further? So, yeah, it might have taken you a little while to to get started on that end, but now you guys are seem, seem to be passing people by, and we don't really talk much about kind of the invisible walls between the different builders we work with. But right here in Columbus, even the smaller semi custom folks in, in the Columbus market, they're like that Fisher Homes, like they kind of have come out of nowhere the last couple of years, and, and it's like no, not nowhere. I mean, you guys. <laughs> So, so how many homes a year does Fisher do? What markets do you serve? Give people some background there as we get started. Sure. So I would have said we're just over 2,000 homes, but that's rapidly changing this year, <laughs> given nice. our, our sales success. So certainly on our way closer to more 3,000, but um, we are operating out of um, Cincinnati, where we started, and that includes Northern Kentucky, just across the river. And our next expansion was to Columbus, Ohio. And then we moved on to Indianapolis. From there, headed to Atlanta, 
And then our most recent expansions in the last couple of years have been to Louisville, Kentucky, and then most recently to Dayton, Ohio. Wow. So that's quite, quite a footprint. It, it, one of those things seems to not belong in, in the state of Georgia, but that's a good diversification yeah. and a good market to be in for sure. Yeah. So, How big is the OSC team? Oh, what did yeah. you grow from? Because you went from, from talking to Kevin, <laughs> should we even do this thing to what's it look like now in 2020? So we started out with three when we first started and we did have a little different approach when we started than maybe what a lot of other companies did and that we centralized the team. Um, so that's a little bit different, but we're now up to roughly eight, but, um, wow. you know, as the leads continue to pick up, uh, we'll probably continue to expand the team. So the first couple of years, we kind of started out three, then added the incremental four, then to five, and it's just yeah. sort of an explosion as we get, continue to get more and more leads online. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. And just again, more background for everyone listening that that centralization of the team is definitely more rare. I think Meritage is probably the the one that has the largest centralized team. M- maybe um, Schumacher, uh, Sh- Schumacher and or Meritage might have the largest centralized teams in the in the in the thirty plus forty plus people uh, area now. But um, that that is different. But it's not it's not a bad thing. You just there's yeah. different there's different trade offs. I think there's no right answer. So for us, a lot of our corporate services are all central. So whether it be mm-hmm. architecture or finance, accounting, HR, everything's kind of here. And so we have that model built for other functions. And so we wanted to sort of redeploy that and treat every division the same and make sure they have the same same experience, basically. So. Yeah. And do, do you ask your team members to learn a Georgian accent um, so that they can connect with I, when I worked when I worked tech support in Columbus, Ohio in college, I was working for Bell South Internet. And so we had to every morning we would we would log in to work. We had to look at what the weather was in the southern states so right. that if someone called and, and we were supposed to act like we were from there, you guys don't do that, obviously. No, so what's funny though is I live in Ohio, but work and in the office is in northern Kentucky. And once you cross that river, there are differences. <laughs> so literally you go, out, you go out to eat and you're sitting down for lunch and you know, they'll call you hun on the northern Kentucky side of the river. You oh, wouldn't get funny. that in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> and the tea goes from unsweet to sweet, right? right. Um, just, yeah. even though it's a couple of miles separate. So what's funny is we have a couple of individuals who are from Kentucky, and you will hear them slip into that southern accent depending on who they're, who they're talking to. And it's not intentional. I think it's just, do they feel like they're back at home when they're talking to somebody? Yeah. Well, we've had Carrie on the program. Carrie Mm -hmm. works with you. Camping with Carrie was the famous episode. People often reference that uh, as one of their favorites, which is great. Things have changed since then. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No more camping. No. (laughs) No more camping for pre-sales in the pandemic. But we wanted to have you on because I think, and, and we'll tease this out as we continue to talk, that that you have a different position than most people who are in marketing are in now. We allude to this at times that marketing's role is sales results. And so that means you have to kind of get involved in other parts of the business and and see how those things impact each other. But cap mar- marketing with a capital M is is what keeps coming to my mind when I think about your role. Right. So what percentage of your time would you say is dedicated to thinking about advertising and traffic and lead generation versus other things? And what are those other things? Sure. So 
I would say as the team grows and becomes more capable, I'm probably shifting more and more of my time to more of the strategic marketing items. Um, and we'll talk about what those are in just a second. But it's it's probably been roughly 50-50 in recent years, but it's probably shifting even more to where I'm spending more time on the strategic side. So things that would be included in that that might be different than some other builders would be working with the design team and architecture of what are the next trends that are coming and what are the kind, kinds of homes we want to build um, to working with the division presidents and what we should be charging for those things oh. and how we can optimize cool. profitability and, um, and also pace in different communities mm-hmm. um, to working with HR and recruiting. And so applying some of our marketing principles and things like that um, to our recruiting efforts. And then also just internal employee communications to sort of impact the culture and how Fisher Homes feels and making sure that, you know, as we grow and expand to different divisions, that that Fisher Homes family feel that we have from coming, coming from a privately held company really is maintained throughout the divisions, but also so everybody knows what's going on. Yeah. You guys have done like an actual quasi television program, like a, like a real program, right? <laughs> so we, um, we have some video updates that go out to the teams for sure to kind of keep them up to date on what's going on in all the divisions. And now some of that is through Zoom and things like that. But. Sure. But your production quality, I think, beat out The Tonight Show for the first week or so of the pandemic, right? Like you guys had, you guys have put some time into it for sure. Yeah, we need to get the little director's chairs that we can sit in with our names <laughs> on the back. But yeah, we do that as well. And I guess another piece really is the land acquisition piece. And that's really how it started in terms of the strategic marketing efforts. So um, really trying to look out of where we, where we need to be, you know, the, the one to three years out is actually pretty easy in terms of where you want to be, but it's four to five years out that gets really challenging. But now with the lead times on land and zoning and all those kinds of things, that's where you have to dedicate your efforts. So you're not meeting with farmers. You're just talking about looking at data yeah, and making some site visits potentially and to learn, to learn the marketplaces. But Right. At, at, a, at a higher level, are you kind of then helping to make the box, so to speak, for the land team to say, this is what you need to go look for? Kind of helping them what, with where do we see population growth being, where, where do we see development taking place? But really, you know, they're experts on the ground, too. And they do know they do know the farmers right at the division level. Mm-hmm. But for us, it's looking at the high level data of what's changing and everybody knows, right, where the great places are, but those places have limited land opportunities. And so what's going to happen and what's the next segue from there? So if the school district is filled up and we know that there isn't a lot of available land, where's that next place going to be? And that does happen, right? There's an evolution over time of kind of the, the great places to be in town in terms of new expansion opportunities. So what's a little bit funny is on the marketing team, I actually have a couple of people with math degrees, which <laughs> is very different. So I've yes. two people with math degrees and then uh, they've got business graduate degrees on top of that. So when we talk about data analysis, it really, um, really is kind of top level here. What is your formal education background? I feel so, like... Sure. Go ahead. So my undergrad is from Indiana and... Um, I majored in business economics and international business. And then okay. um, I got my uh, MBA here at the University of Cincinnati locally. Okay, Did you fun. get a basketball minor when you were a Hoosier? Isn't Absolutely. that a requirement of everyone who attends the school? <laughs> really, it starts at birth. It's <laughs> <laughs> started out in the driveway when I was very young, but that's that's what you did in Indiana. So uh, yeah, funny enough, like at high school games in, in my town, like literally, it was not unusual if you'd have anywhere between five and ten thousand people on the weekend, which is which was nuts. Wow, that's crazy. 
So it sounds like the bigger picture economic side is more your your cup of tea, I guess, compared oh, to the I, clicking buttons in Facebook, which might be like a totally different marketer. I would say a little bit of both. So the data, data analytics, right, can apply to both. But I think um, overall, they're looking for me to take the marketing organization right to the next level by impacting different aspects of the business. So it's funny when you've got a team that can do data analysis, you get all kinds of requests, right? Because other people are are being asked to come up with things. So it's like you could have the purchasing team all of a sudden asking you about uh, about brand recognition for appliances or something like that, right? Wow. Like once people know you have that skill set, then people come out of the woodwork from all different aspects of the organization <laughs> looking for data analysis. Well, I think I think alignment is the word that comes to mind for me. You're really in the alignment business of making sure the entire organization and all these different aspects are focused on where you're going. And right. I'm curious who is determining what that alignment should be. Because a lot of the frustration I hear from marketing leaders is incorrect, but they don't know where else. It's like the company should go here. And, and I, you know, it's, it's hard to help them sometimes be like, marketing doesn't always get to pick that. And, right. and, and success is often based upon somewhere outside of marketing. And again, you're trying to, to help create that alignment. It seems like you guys have figured that out, the importance of trying to get there. But who, who on the Fisher team is really determining what that alignment goal is? I mean, I think the great thing about our organization is that we listen to the different fun functional experts. So oftentimes on the marketing side, we're working just in alignment with any of the different teams. And then we're using really the data and the research to drive the result. And so at the end of the day, we're a very... We're a very data-driven organization. So if we've got some evidence to say we should go here and this way in terms of design, then it sort of eliminates some of the emotion or the thought of like, no, I really think it should be this. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's been a great thing in the organization is just being open to new and different ideas. And so I came from outside of the home building industry. And I think part of that was they're very open to people with new insights and a different way of looking at things. I'm not trying to paint the picture that Fisher Homes is perfect or you know, some incredibly different place. But what strikes me about your answer is you didn't just, it wasn't prepared either. You didn't say the boss, right? Like, well, the CEO says the fact that the data is the thing that's kind of primary right. and what everyone brings to analyzing and looking at that data. And then you have a discussion about what needs to happen is really important because any one person as great as they can be, if they're not letting the data at least guide to some extent, we don't, We've talked before, we don't opt out of all personal accountability because, well, the data said so, so we go there blindly. But I think that's that's really insightful about why the organization, to me, has always felt, even as you guys have grown, I'm not part of the Fisher family. Uh, you've never given me an honorary hat or t-shirt or anything. Um, <laughs> you never come to lunch, even though I say every time someone's in Columbus, I'll go to lunch with you. So if anything, I feel like the in-laws, but... <laughs> you guys definitely have kept that that ability when we're talking with you of flexibility that a lot of companies struggle with as they scale up and become larger. I think another thing that's nice is the way our business is, is each division is run a little bit separately. And so that's really a testing ground for anything we want to try. And mm -hmm. so it gives us a nice pool to play around with, right? And see if something works. And then you can quickly expand out to the other divisions too. So that's that's been a nice way to look at things. Where Andrew asked you about your education background, did you or have you always been in home building? Is that just no, you grew no, up with a hammer in your hand and came <laughs> no, on board? So, uh, 
I actually started out more in consumer products. So I started out working for Procter and Gamble and I was there oh. for six years before getting my MBA. So, um, laundry detergent and things like that, right? Yeah. Another, <laughs> another business that's thriving in the pandemic. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Can't find homes or paper towels or toilet paper. Right. So, and then after that, funny enough, so I actually worked in the candy industry for nine years after getting, oh, wow. and so I worked on uh, Airheads Candy and then Mentos. One of those worked well. Airheads are still, are Mentos still a thing? What are, oh, absolutely. I'm, so, I'm having a mental condition here. Mentos. That's the big like thing that. with Mentos was the, uh, yeah, the exploding in the Diet Coke, right? So. Oh yeah. We, we did that during quarantine. That's it what Mentos great. are. They're like. Three weekends in a row. The other thing that I was really involved with was was the expansion of Mentos into gum. And so they're also a major uh, player in the gum market. Okay, so you are then also, to some degree, a brand guy. You have to be. How could you be a Procter & Gamble and not be a brand guy? Right. So, go ahead. No, no, you first. Keep going. No, I was going to say, part of my background there was more logistics supply chain, but also working with the marketing team in terms of design and things like that and packaging. Yeah, but I think like that's a that has to be a recruitment question. Like, do you believe in brands? Are you willing to, um, or or maybe you know, but bust my myth here. But I feel like have have you adjusted your perspective on what a brand is when it comes to home? Is there a difference? Maybe that's the best question to ask between a home builder brand and a consumer packaged good brand. <laughs> There's a huge difference in the budget. <laughs> <laughs> okay, in the budget for sure. The budget yeah. goes towards advertising. So. Yep. Trying to hit the masses versus trying to hit a very narrow target was eye-opening for me, for sure. And I would say, like in Mentos in my previous life, when we were launching Gum, right, we had a bit more of a focus. And part of it was the timing, too, of it was more of a broad reach, still a lot of TV, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, some couponing even, so different ways to reach the consumer. But we didn't still worry, much worry about the website, whereas in home building, it's completely flipped, right? And uh, much more targeted, the website's critical to success. So I did have to make some, some transitions and some flips from where I'd been before. I mean, I've, I've done it all too. I, Andrew, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I, I was, I used to run ads in the penny saver, that little like mm-hmm. thing of all the advertisements like, that comes in the Sunday paper. And, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, I would, I would say a big difference between organizations in like, you know, CPG versus, uh, versus home building too, would be, the leaders in the organization. So oftentimes I feel like in home building, you've got people who have a construction or engineering mm-hmm. background running the company. Mm-hmm. And so that was eye-opening for me too. Whereas traditionally on the CPG side, you had people with more of a marketing or sales background. Yeah. And so it really hit me when I first came into the industry. And this, this does go back a few years, but when you go to all the websites, like the first thing you see in a lot of cases were these just hideous maps, right? And then you saw what they were handing out to customers and it was just all this text of every feature in the home and there was right nothing to fall in love with. And so that's one thing I've tried to transition here and you see other people doing it too in the industry. We're, we're not unique, but having all the beautiful photos and the things to fall in love with versus all the specs and things like that, that, that may have existed years ago when the industry was maybe a little bit more, more tech tech focused in terms of the technology of building and constructing the homes. Even a, just the focus on education as a whole, I bet half the people in the main office where I started in 2003, I bet half of the people there did not have a college education. And right. so they were very intelligent, but in terms of their ability to communicate in written form to a broader audience, it was, it was, it was, 
eye-opening is a good word out of saying that skill set's important for some roles and some roles it may not be, but it also kind of put into me this, there's a ton of opportunity for me in this industry as I'm starting my career in 2003 saying, wow, like if you come with some of this other background, right. like you said, it just wasn't, wasn't there in a broad sense. And the timing has been perfect too with the digital kind of revolution that's gone on these past couple of years to bring in new technologies, new ways of looking at things that where the technology, you know, also didn't exist um, some years ago. So you weren't able to implement it. So that's, that's been really fun to see in the, the transition to the industry. You see it, I think, in the results right now. Would you say, so this, this might be a bad question. I don't know. Could, could be or not be. Could you, would you say on average builders struggle with brand? Like what does that actually mean to be a home builder as far as are they actually doing anything to be a brand? Does that make sense? Because brand, I hate that word. Because what does it even mean? Like what people perceive when they see your logo, what are they thinking about? Do you think yeah. most, like just if you're on their site, you're like, who are you? You have homes and that's it. There's I mean, not one thing I've seen more. from the different markets that we're in is that I do feel like some builders may struggle for how does that brand translate from one market to the next and the consistency that's there. Oh, I definitely for sure. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Um, yeah, both from a design aspect, from a one division can, I mean, that's the thing that I always tell smaller builders, don't get too excited about getting big because then you could have a perfect operation in 20 of your markets. And one of those markets gets on the news, has a ton of construction issues, right. and the whole thing can get pulled down pretty far, pretty fast. Sure. Yeah. So all this uniqueness at Fisher and the way that you guys approach things seems to be working. I've got pulled up here a Builder Magazine article from July 14th that says Fisher Homes sales up 138% in June, which seems like a bigger number. I know you are also a fan of Allie Wolf as I am, and I think their research has shown fairly consistently that like they're saying kind of 38-ish, 40% is kind of the average year-over-year growth that builders are seeing in the marketplace. So triple the average sounds pretty good. Yeah, I'll take it. We'll take it, yeah. <laughs> my, my perception in the article, you guys were very humble and said, market conditions, market conditions, market conditions. Well, market conditions should leave you at about 38% growth. And, and you obviously <laughs> did more than that. My perception, having known you for as long as I have is, you guys were, and we've talked about this a lot, you're already heading in a direction consistently over the last five yeah. plus years. And so when that acceleration hit, it, it's like you guys had already been training for half marathons. And so the full marathon and absorbing the full potential of what the market was giving you, I don't want to say easier because easy seems like, again, a, a, a simplistic way of looking at it, but you guys didn't have to probably do the same mental stretches and exercises that a lot of people did. Yeah. Is that fair? Without a, Is, yeah, I, without a doubt, all the work we've done over the last several years to digitize the business and put in both the work and the money towards additional tools for the team definitely played out. Um, you know, while the results are like amazing looking at, at June and even, even forward from there, um, you know, I'm most proud of the the shift that the team made back in from mid-March to kind of mid-May when, mm. when lockdown was in full effect. And um, I think what's great is that as we had introduced new tools to the team over the last several years, they kind of got used to that. And how do we implement that? 
How does the online team work with the on-site team? And I was so proud of the effort everybody kind of on the front lines made to quickly adapt to everything from virtual appointments to then launching communities um, more on an appointment basis that was all digital. We'll call it the the Ticketmaster experience versus the camping <laughs> experience. And I mean, just shifted on a fly and, and nobody complained, nobody batted an eye. And, um, you know, I think we're going to look back at 2020 and really be proud of some of the shifts we were able to make. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Now, I've heard someone on a call recently mentioned that they were a little concerned that that we are just selling to everyone who wants to buy. And they feel like at any... So has it slowed down since June? We have not seen that at all. And in fact, um, yeah, are, are having a record month here yet again. So we're yeah, not I think good. the accumulation of all the, the, like the alignment, like Kevin was talking about earlier, like doing that for years, it's not like I do it this month and I'm going to reap the benefit of that next month. It's, I did that four years ago, five years ago. Now it's 2020 sure. and you're, you're seeing that consistency of the marketing with the land and, and all that. Yeah. yeah. I think, the Federal Reserve coming out and saying, basically, I've, I don't know what at this point is going to make them raise interest rates. I just saw another headline this morning. Uh, we're recording this on August 31st. They're like, hey, even if employment goes up, don't expect interest rates to go up. It's like, wait, so employment, we're not going <laughs> to raise interest rates. If inflation hits, we're going to average it out over 10 years and we're not going to raise interest rates. It Crazy. seems like... Uh, it's goofy, right? Is that they've been targeting 2% inflation for yeah. years. They could never hit it. And so they're kind of saying, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll just remove the brake entirely and see what happens. So Yeah. So I, I think this this ride is going to continue for a while. And that leaves up a whole, whole other problem of expectation setting. Um, I was on call with someone who's like, I don't care what the price of lumber... Like everyone's talking about how lumber has gone up 80, 90, 100%. Like we don't really care because we can't get it. So we'll pay any price for lumber if we can just get it. But that that's going to create a, another challenge of do we keep just pushing forward or, or how people realign on the construction? And because alignment has to be set all the way through or eventually right. like an engine out of alignment, bad things can start to happen. My, my economics background does tell me that markets do eventually get back to some sort of equilibrium, right? I mean, we do, we are very positive and bullish on the years ahead, but at the same time, we do know at some point as materials go up, as, yep. as labor is more difficult to find, um, things do have a way of balancing out over time. But what's interesting is on the, on the sales and marketing stack, to borrow from, from TechSpeak, I don't see that needing to change even as markets realign, which is the most exciting thing. It's kind of like... Right. We are finally on this. I'm not saying we're up with every other industry in terms of digitization. Right. But we are truly leading the way into kind of the next wave of home building business and the way that it should be run, which is. I would ab absolutely agree. And I think the last several months have probably accelerated what was what was already going to happen. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's, exactly. it's interesting. Um, I, th I think it was a year and a half ago or maybe two years. Maybe just a year and a half, you launched a um, page on your site that contained all the virtual tours. Super mm -hmm. easy to find. And I remember when we were shopping for our home, I'm like, why don't all builders have this stupid page? Yeah, my wife page. said like, the same thing. She was like, this is great. Where can I find all of these for Columbus? Yeah. Uh, when, when I said that story on the podcast like a year ago, it was, mm -hmm. it was the Fisher Homes page. She was like, okay, where does this ex just exist for all the builders in central Ohio? And I was like, that... That doesn't. And I... That, inside I, I pulled up the data on it on my screen while while we're talking <laughs> and it's like 
we have the when it first launched. Here's the data. Here's the page views here, and it's I'm, I'm making visual cues like people can hear me. It's been like a steady growth up and up and up and up. And you see, like, well, there's COVID, and like the demand for that page like skyrocketed, and it's it's flattened a little bit since you know March and April. But it's interesting. It's still hanging in this new tier of like people still expect that um, and still need those. That's one of those where it's like, yeah, we started it and we had a few tours, you know, but if we hadn't been building that library over months, right, we wouldn't have been ready. But yeah, you have yeah, a few. You know, we were ready. So we, uh, we had, I think, 45 models. We used it on some market homes as well. Um, so we have seen success with that for sure. Yeah, love it. Awesome. Well, Steve, thanks so much for joining us and being willing to share some of the insights. I really just want to encourage the marketers, especially listening, that it wasn't always this way. I am right, Steve. Like you weren't always involved in all these things. I I was on a coaching call with someone uh, from the Southwest a couple weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now, COVID time, it all warps together. But I was explaining to them, they they had just been an admin, essentially, sitting in their office, constantly cranking out flyers and emails and ad creative. And it's like, you know, hey, let's try to work towards once a week, getting out of your seat there, getting involved with salespeople, go on a ride along with a sales manager to learn so that you can have this more holistic impact on the business. And she was just freaking excited. She's like, oh my gosh, this can be a real career like at this company, I can, I can, this can become more than it is and absolutely can. It's to think that all you're doing is creating ads that are trying to put lipstick on pigs instead of trying to make sure that we don't have pigs and we get involved in land and we set their pricing right. And, and maybe one day we need to have you teach a class on competitive market analysis because that's the the most recent thing in my mind is builders are raising prices, raising prices, raising prices is these across the board increases and just every three sales. I'm not saying that's not a correct strategy at the moment, but to not have it balanced with the reality of market conditions and what the consumer is willing to pay at some point, it it really is becoming a lost art that they're kind of like, we don't need to do an analysis. Look, the market's up. Everything's going to work. Right. And that's the other part I think is going to set us up for, for a big fall is at Heartland, when we had to readjust our prices, and this was probably 2009, late 2009. We were giving away 60 grand plus on every sale of a 350 to $450,000 home. 60 grand discount. If you only got 60 grand off a house, the salesperson felt like they were stealing from you. Like some people were getting 80 grand, 100 grand. And that was because our pricing had gotten so out of whack based upon 2007, 2008. And it took it took six months really from beginning to end of the entire management team learning how to redo competitive analysis and resetting everything to the right. to where we didn't have to do discounts. And so um, uh, that's where your team's going to be really thankful. They've got someone with your perspective to, yeah. to be able to help them crunch yep. those numbers. And to your point, it does make it exciting getting to work on different aspects of the business, really connecting to other functions and feeling like you can overall influence strategy. So I, I'd encourage everybody to make their role, you know, bigger than it is, figure out how marketing. Oh, can I got it. it. This is a good thing to end on. And this will be a new, a new joke or, or meme or something, Andrew, you can use. Love uh, it. Don't let other departments view you as if you are IT or HR, right? Like that, that what you're describing is what yeah. I felt at Heartland uh, eventually, which was if I walk down the hallway 
the majority of people hopefully felt like that's someone who could help me do what I do better in some way. That's exactly right. So don't be IT, don't be HR. Yeah. Be the department that everyone's excited to interact with and feels can be helpful versus, oh no, there's that person who tells me I can't post on social or, you know, absolutely. And I think that, that also depends on the culture of your team and like creating a great culture within your marketing team, right? Which yep. then can, can go out and go to other parts of the business as well. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll link to all of his uh, social channels, uh, LinkedIn especially. Make sure to, to connect with Steve and, and watch, watch what's going on there at Fisher because they're doing awesome stuff. Great talking to you, Kevin and Andrew. I appreciate Thanks, it. All right. We'll see ya. See ya. Okay. Take care.